Welcome to Temporary Experts, the show where two professional science communicators investigate relevant science stories from the everyday, research the heck out of it, and discuss their findings with you. Howdy there, folks. She's Sarah Bannister. And he's Davis Leong, and together we're your Temporary, temporary experts. experts. This week's topic is... Natural disasters. Specifically, earthquakes and... Hurricanes. Because they're, they're in, in the news. <laughs> but first, Sarah, do you have any updates from our previous stories? I do. I have one update. It uh, links into our light podcast, our last episode. So I referred to certain snakes, like ball pythons, as the puppies of the snake world. And a friend thought that that was an interesting turn of phrase. So I sent them a picture of a snake I'm going to show Davis right now. <laughs> Uh, if I can get it back up. So this is a ball python. Its name is Pretzelcoatl, which I think is a take on the Aztec god Quetzalcoatl, yeah. who was a feathered serpent god. And this is the face of Pretzelcoatl. Isn't that cute? If you're into snakes, yes. For all of our <laughs> listeners out there that can't see this photo, it's a cute snake. If that's your jam. <laughs> uh, if you want to look it up, it's Pretzelcoat. L, and it's all one word. The python with the most adorable face, it's called. Mm. So there you go. That's that's my update. Very important mm. update. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. There you have it. Now you now you know. Sarah's justified in her weird snake analogies. Yay. Uh, <laughs> Approval. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah, so uh, on to less fun things. Than Much cute less snakes. fun things. Uh, so yeah, so we're going to spend some time today. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, some natural disasters, specifically hurricanes and earthquakes, because they've been pretty prominent. Obviously, we're in hurricane season now. There's been quite a few powerful earthquakes over the last few months. Uh, and we wanted to give a little bit of space to this topic, uh, just because like there is a big cost of life with these sorts of things. And it's really like... It is of interest to us to, under, to understand them, understand why they happen, understand how we either prepare for them or, mm -hmm. you know, proof our infrastructure for these types of things. Uh, we just wanted to start with an acknowledgement of some of the areas that have been very uh, severely affected by some of these natural disasters. Yeah, so we uh, looked at the earthquake uh, mostly in Haiti recently um, that happened in August 14th, and the a uh, hurricane that I think we both were more focused on. Uh, the recent one was Hurricane Ida that went, oh boy, it went from the Caribbean all the way up through uh, the east coast of the U.S. into Canada. So if you are interested in uh, learning more about these uh, these events and you would like to potentially donate to relief funds, we will be having, uh, we'll be posting some relief fund information in our description for this video. So check out those links if you would like to offer some uh, monetary support to relief efforts on the ground because we all got to pull together to deal with gigantic natural disasters such as these. Mm -hmm. And we kind of wanted to talk about this topic like a couple weeks after these things had happened because typically uh, the news cycle moves on very quickly mm -hmm. and these things stay in the public conscious for very short periods of time and then like the relief money kind of like disappears and, it, uh, and uh, the attention really trickles off. So we thought it was a good idea to kind of talk about these things a couple weeks 
further out than we might do some of our normal, like, in the news type stories, uh, just because to draw attention back to these things and, like, that recognition that, like, these problems aren't solved overnight um, when you have this kind of damage to infrastructure and things like that. Absolutely. And mm-hmm. Haiti also, uh, very shortly after the earthquake, got hit with, I think it was a tropical a tropical storm. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a full-blown hurricane, but they're still pretty bad. Mm-hmm. And they were already reeling from that and from some... Uh, Serious political unrest. Yes. So. And yeah, so we'll, uh, so yeah, we just wanted to start with that acknowledgement of the, of the loss of life, the human cost uh, of these things, the economic cost. And, you know, because we're going to talk about these things from a pretty sciencey perspective. Uh, and we just wanted to make sure that we didn't lose sight of the human element behind these uh, types of natural disasters. Exactly. So we're going to start things off here. We're going to talk about, we're going to start with earthquakes. We're going to talk a little bit about like what causes earthquakes, how we monitor and measure earthquakes, how we prepare for earthquakes and like through proofing our infrastructure and stuff like that. Uh, so we'll give a little bit of the, um, I don't know, where, where do you think we should start? I think, I think we should start with the giant plates we're all floating <laughs> on on giant rivers of magma. <laughs> rivers of magma. magma. So, yeah, as you might be aware, like, the Earth is, uh, you may have seen that, you know, the diagram where the Earth is, like, cut open like a cake or whatever. I guess they call it cross-section. Mm-hmm. And so most people, you know, we've got uh, a solid core and then, like, a liquid metal core around that. And Was a solid core? Yeah. yeah. it was all liquid. No, 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 there's, like, a solid portion of the core, like, right at the center. And What's then there's, like, of? liquid core. Um, it's, like, nickel <laughs> iron, mostly. Oh. Nickel iron, I think. Uh, well, I, even I'm learning new things. Yeah. Well, and interestingly, too, right, like, this is one of the processes that they say, like, it's the motion of the core and the mantle and the magma, like, all the inner crust and stuff like that around each other that generates, like, the magnetic field around the Earth, right? So, essentially, you have, like, iron is magnetic. Yeah. You essentially have this iron spinning at a really fast rate, and it's, like, an electromagnet. Yeah. And that's what creates the electromagnetic field that protects the Earth from, like, solar flares and things like that we've we've talked about in the past. Talked about in our light podcast. Exactly. And it's actually, like, this is one of the theories behind, like, well, why doesn't Mars have an atmosphere anymore, even though it's, like, a very similar planet and there's a trace that it used to have an atmosphere and has a very, like, thin atmosphere and all this stuff. It's because there's some belief that, like, Mars's core no longer spins. So it doesn't generate this electromagnetic field that protected it from solar winds. So solar winds were able to, like, blow the atmosphere away. It's a little bit, like, I I don't... (sighs) I was not fully prepared to speak to this, so, like, I haven't done a ton of research into it. It's a little bit one of those, like, half sci-fi, half, like, this is what they think has happened. Because we've never been to the center of the Earth. Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. slow down there, Jules Verne. Also, sorry, uh, we always, Davis and I always joke that we talk too much about space, and then we started talking talking about about a different planet. (laughs) But, yeah, actually, though, the, like, the the journey to the center of the Earth is a very interesting (laughs) novel. Uh, it's a quick read. I highly recommend it for people out there. It's very interesting because it's just like, they don't really go into like the center of the yeah. earth, but it's like, it's kind of, Jules Verne was a big uh, believer in like the hollow earth theory at the time. Oh. This is like the 1800s before we knew that there was like, a, like a, like the mantle and stuff like yeah. that. Like, um, so it's this, this hollow earth theory that like <laughs> there are dinosaurs deep in the earth and stuff like that. There was a movie with the rock in it like five years ago. That was not very good. I think but it was a few more than five years ago. That's true. I, time, time gets really warped. <laughs> yeah. Last 19 months, who knows anyway. Yeah, exactly. But anyway, so Earth. Yeah, so Earth is, you know, so you got this core, but then on top of it is like the, common, commonly we refer to it as like the mantle. Mm-hmm. And it's basically all of like the, you know, the the magma and things like that. Uh, 
and it's in all these different layers and it's sort of circling around the earth. But you can basically think about it, it's a fluid, right? It's mm -hmm. like a liquid. And then on top of it, the part that we all live on is, of course, the crust. And the crust is not actually like a big uniform, uh, like single piece of rock. It's actually made up of these larger segments that they call like the tectonic plates. Yeah. So you're probably familiar with the tectonic plates. And the idea is that it's like, imagine essentially like a giant puzzle. Uh, and it's all these little pieces that are kind of fitting together, but it'd be like the world's worst. It's like, have you ever tried to shove a piece into it? <laughs> like when you're really young, you're doing a jigsaw's puzzle and you're just like, I know this piece goes here. I'm just going to stick it in. I always think of, uh, there's a Simpsons where Homer's trying to do a puzzle mm -hmm. and he just like sits down and tries to put two pieces together and they don't. He's just like banging on it and eventually yeah. he just falls asleep at the puzzle. See, this is me because like, I'm not a big jigsaw puzzle oh. person. So like, this is me doing a puzzle. It's like, nah, do they just go together? I don't care anymore. Um, I lose interest very quickly. That's why Davis and I don't do jigsaw puzzles together. <laughs> <laughs> I just get frustrated and leave. Um, but yeah, so essentially they're all like float, these tectonic plates are like floating on this sea of liquid rock and, but they're touching each other in all these different points. And this is where we kind of like, you'll hear a lot of like fault, you know, we talk about fault lines a lot and things like that. And these are actually, it's an area where the plates are touching each other and it's called like a fault or a fault plane. Mm -hmm. And it's, that's where two pieces of earth slide past yeah. each other. And I think the jigsaw analogy was like, they're like puzzle pieces that are not perfect, right? Like they're, they're kind of like yeah. bent mm -hmm. and, and a little misshapen. So they don't fit together absolutely perfectly anymore. Mm -hmm. And so they have these boundary areas um, where they touch each other. It starts, sorry, it's called the plate boundary. I was looking for the word in my notes, but yeah, <laughs> the plate boundaries where these, the places where these um, jagged pieces of earth, the crust touch each other and they're constantly moving around. So you've probably seen like a picture, like um, if you're big into dinosaurs, you've probably learned about like Pangea, Pangea and that earth used to be one giant continent surrounded by a sea. One big cookie floating on a soup. Yeah. And then slowly <laughs> over millions and millions and millions of years, those continents started to drift apart and then they became like the earth that we know today with the continents that we have today so you can like watch these time lapses of like the various stages of Pangea breaking apart and actually the land masses of the earth will eventually go back into like a type of Pangea the late, like the the continents are actually getting further apart every year some of them wild yeah so it's something like it's like an inch Every year, like, England is an inch further away from North America every year kind of thing. If you uh, if you want a good example of this, I recently went to the Royal Tyrell Museum for the first time. Ooh, it was like a big dino museum. Excellent. But it has, because it's talking about dinosaurs, and dinosaurs cover such a huge swath of time, mm -hmm. they have all these, uh, it's the it's divided in sections of, like, by time, yeah, the different you, eras by time. Yeah. And as you start each section, it shows you, like, kind of what the, the continents looked like at that time. It's pretty cool. Yeah, it's a it's a super great. It's an amazing museum. It's like a world class yeah. dinosaur museum in Drumheller, Alberta. And yeah, it's organized. It's like a pathway, and it's all yeah. organized like you start in like the Devonian period or the uh, the Precambrian, sorry, mm -hmm. and you work all the way through to like the Devonian yeah. and then the modern era. But it has all these the as the plates have drifted apart, mm -hmm. uh, the way that the the world looked. You you can see this in certain animal and plant evolution as well. Yeah, but. The plates. Yeah, so the plates are constantly <laughs> moving past each other. And they are, they have kind of these jagged edges that are trying to slide past each other. And every so often, like along the plate boundaries, they're going to catch along each other. So you've got these like jagged pieces and they just don't, they don't want to move past each other very easily. And so 
it's hard to think about, like, when you think about a rock from the human perspective, like, the rock, you can't compress a rock, like, not with your human force. Um, maybe very brittle rocks and things like that. But, like, it's hard to think about, like, there's lots of space in a rock or a mineral, and they, they're actually, just, like, there's basically, like, everything has a springing ability. Like, it's you can compress it and allow it to then, like, con uh, compress and then expand. It might actually be easier to think about, like, two cookies. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. And so... As these plates are trying to slide past each other, there's points where they catch and then they're not, and the, that part, that section is not going to move. Mm -hmm. And the plate is still moving, but this section is now stuck. And it basically what's happening is it's building up energy. And it keeps building up energy until eventually the plate slips. And yeah. this point where this fault, where this movement is happening, will slip back into place. And then all of this energy, so if you think about like pulling a sp spring, and pulling it further and further and further and further and further apart, it's it's you are storing energy in that spring, right. and the energy is coming from the movement of the plates, and it's being stored up, and then all of a sudden that energy is released all at once, and that is essentially what an earthquake is: is this very sudden release of energy that builds up. So you think about like we often talk about these major fault lines. So mm -hmm. if you live on the west coast uh, of North America, there's a lot of conversation about like the San Andreas Fault, specifically yeah. around California. Yeah. And that's because the Rocky Mountains and most mountain ranges in general, all mountain ranges are built, are, mountain ranges are formed at places where two plates are converging and one is like going under the other and one's going up. So they're basically causing each other like wrinkle and pushing rock into the sky. You can see this actually on the drive out to like Banff and stuff from mm -hmm, Calgary. Mm -hmm. uh, there was one day I spent some time in Banff or Canmore and I went to like a geological center and it was like this tiny little museum and I was the only person who went in there and so the guy came out and just started talking to me I had like 20 minutes I think I spent 30 there because he gave, <laughs> just gave me like a detailed tour of everything but if you look at the rocks um this is the rocks the big rocks the mountains on the drive out to Banff you can see that they don't look they're not just like triangles they have all these like diagonal horizontal lines down them and those are actually the different bands of rock from different time periods that have been laid down and then as the as this part of the plate got forced up, it started going on an angle. So now we have all of these, these like diagonal horizontal lines that represent the different, uh, the different eras that were laid down totally horizontally, but then the plate has moved. Mm -hmm. It's like a really uh, good visual for it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like, and so that's a, it's a perfect example for it to, under, to explain like how <laughs> these things move. And then like all those layers used to be like sea floor yeah. essentially. And then they were all pushed up. Yeah. And so what's happening in these regions, This is these are areas where there's, like, lots of this type of slippage. And the uh, earthquakes have been recorded on all seven continents, but the the most have been in three regions uh, where these fault lines are, like, the most active. So there's the Mid-Atlantic Ridge that runs, like, north to south, it basically straight through the Atlantic. Um, it's underwater. The Alpide Belt, which is the Mediterranean to Southeast Asia. And it looks a lot less like a straight line. It's a little more fractured as it goes down. And then the one that hits um, the San Andreas Fault and everything, this is the Circum-Pacific Belt, which basically traces the Pacific Ocean. So it looks like it kind of starts around New Zealand, and then it goes uh, across to the U.S., uh, I think, yeah, Canada and B.C., and then down the, the west coast of the U.S., all the way to the southern tip of South America. And 80% of earthquakes are on that one. 
Mm, yeah. And there's um there's a big correlation between these areas and like where volcanoes will form as yeah. well. Because there are areas where essentially there's a break in the crust and it's in certain conditions, it's easier for the magma from the Earth's crust to like make its way up yeah. into volcanoes. Exactly, because you have your plates floating on magma, and when they slip past each other, there's gonna be room for them to room for that magma to escape. Mm-hmm. So what happens when you have an earthquake? So you you have this section of Earth, it and then all of a sudden it slips past, uh, and all this sort of energy is released. So you've probably heard this term, like we call it like an epicenter yes. when we talk about earthquakes. So the epicenter is actually the point on the surface of the Earth that is directly above where the slippage occurs in the fault. Mm-hmm. And that point within the Earth is called the hypocenter. And we typically don't talk about the hypocenter because it's way more difficult to, and it's just not in our human perception. It's much easier to say like, well, it occurred here, this point on the earth. And like, this is how many miles away it was from you rather than saying like, it occurred here. And then this many miles down, like real seismic scientists, they'll talk about how many miles down because it'll have a big effect on how strong an earthquake might be or how much it's felt by humans on the surface or what kind of after effects might come. Do we feel it more? If it's lower or shallower? I think it's like, uh, putting me on the spot here. (laughs) (laughs) I can't remember exactly. I I think it's like, I think it's if it's shallow, there's less, like the waves don't propagate as much, like specifically the ones that are in the earth that are like really damaging and like it's more surface waves. So I seem to remember that like depth typically... Yeah, I might have to get this. That's okay. We can we can also look it up and tell you next week. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We this will be our update for the next yeah. podcast. Yeah, so I can't quite remember. I like definitely neglected to look that up. But that's okay. So did I. Um, <laughs> We're temporary experts. <laughs> but yeah, so but that does like so when this slippage occurs, like you we talked a lot about um, waves in a couple of different podcasts. We've talked about yeah. like waveforms and things like that. The light went a lot. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So. You know, and sound waves, for example, like they need a medium to move through, right? So there's the classic, like, oh, there's no sound in space. No sound in space. Because there's not enough particles in space. The particles aren't close enough together. They don't act as a medium, like a fluid medium like air does, to transmit these types of things through the air. Whereas, like, but the Earth can act this way, too. We don't often think about it that way because, like, again, from the human perspective, it's really difficult to think about the Earth as this, like, as a medium. Yeah, like, it's rock. (laughs) Exactly. And it takes, like, it takes massive amounts of force to create waves through that type of medium, right? Um, It's the same thing, like, you know, like waves underwater will like if you speak underwater the sound will go farther but it sounds so weird because you're moving through a different medium yeah uh and so basically what happens is this all this energy is released all at once and it literally creates waves and we call these seismic waves that travel out in every direction from the from the hypocenter really from the point in the center of the earth and an earthquake has like so an earthquake generally has like three main features Some earthquakes will have a foreshock, which is something of an indicator before the earthquake happens, but it's not super common. All earthquakes will have this main shock, that's the main slippage, and then almost always there are aftershocks. You often hear aftershocks talked about a lot in like earthquake survival, because sometimes you'll feel the main shock, the main amount of damage will occur, but then people will like come out of their homes and start to investigate the damage. Mm -hmm. But then aftershocks occur and they might, and this is when things like, you know, gas mains explode and things like that. Because like you already have all this damaged, unstable infrastructure, and then it gets shook again and it can cause more damage. And again, people think the danger has passed. So 
Uh, and so what happens is there's these all these different types of waves that are coming out from the earthquake. And so there are surface waves and then there are waves that are like in the earth. So the surface waves only move on the on the surface of the earth and they're typically not like the more powerful ones. That makes sense. Yeah, exactly. So same sort of thing. Like you're at the top of your medium, it's like a ripple effect, right? Right. You're only moving like a small amount of earth, small amount of area. The big ones though are the body waves. And these are moving through the earth or any medium. And there's two main types. There's a primary wave and a secondary wave. A primary wave is like a pressure wave. So if you've ever seen like, you know, the old Mythbusters episodes where they would do like a lot of explosions and they would show like the pressure wave of the explosion moving. Right. And they used to put like the G-force badges on people to like show if like the pressure wave would kill someone and stuff like that. So that's sort of like a pressure wave moves first. It's a little bit faster and it's more, it's a different type of... Uh, like it, it compresses the earth in a different way. Okay. And this is the one, like, you know how in every disaster movie, like the animals always detect the earthquake oh, coming first. So the primary wave, some animals will feel a pressure wave before oh. it's also like dogs will feel pressure waves before humans will, and they'll react to them. Uh, the primary wave so cool. is also like, that's the part that the seismographs will detect first. Then I, this. Mm -hmm. I wonder if this is like when... So as someone who likes sharks a lot and must bring them into every podcast, uh, there's been, when they did like really, really, really slow motion video of like great whites breaching, mm -hmm. you can see just before the great white breaches, there's like a bubble of water that they're pushing because they're moving so quickly and they're so big that they're actually pushing a bubble of water and you can see, or not like a big bubble, but like they're like surrounded almost by like a, th a film of water and that's how sometimes seals know how to get out of the way because they feel this, the mm -hmm. water being pushed before the shark gets to them. Otherwise they're just dinner. Mm -hmm. But so it, I feel like it's a similar type of thing in terms of like just a bit of forewarning before the big thing happens. Yeah, exactly. And like, we're talking about like such a small difference in amount of time really, right? But like yeah. the further away you are, the more separate they're right. going to be. Right. And then the second, then like the other thing is too, is the primary wave can move through any medium. So whether it's oh. solids, liquids, or gases. So anything that's in, you know, so if an earthquake occurs deep in the ocean, the primary wave is able to move through the liquids and stuff like that. Whereas secondary waves are only able to really move through solids. And it's just, again, it's different types of ways of compressing the earth that it's why they move differently. Okay. Yeah. It's still so, so mind bending to be like, yeah, waves through the earth. My brain is still trying, still trying to get around that. And so that's really what you're feeling, right? Is that like, it is, it's, that's why it's, you know, it shakes because it's a vibration. So if you ever yeah. stood near like a subwoofer when it's going, you can feel the vibrations in your body. It's the exact same thing. And it's mm -hmm. just that we are talking about waves on like on the order of magnitude of like thousands of like thousands of kilotons hundreds of kilotons of like tnt like the right. amount of force right. and like i like yeah so it's something like um i'll talk about it in a minute because we'll talk more about like how earthquakes are measured and like okay. why certain ones are so like why certain ones are so devastating and things like that right. but that's like most of like the science of like what an earthquake is right big stuff hitting into each other rubbing against each other releasing a lot of energy sending out waves through the solid medium of Earth, and to send a wave through a solid medium, it's got to be pretty darn powerful. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So it's really, it's about this stored up energy. And this is why we also talk about like 
regions being, oh, we're overdue for an earthquake in certain regions of the world, like right. powerful earthquakes, because we can, earthquakes are nearly impossible to have like an early warning system for, but we have, we do have an understanding of like how the plates move past each other, the speeds they're moving at, right. and how often these types of things should happen. So they often say like the San Andreas fault is like 30 years overdue for a major earthquake. Is that the one in uh, San Fran? That's the one that, yeah, that goes through San Francisco and okay. L.A. and stuff like that. Um, I don't know why I said San Fran. It's and it's one that gets a lot of attention because in the 70s, there was a major earthquake right, and it yeah. caused tons of, like, and, you know, many thousands of people lost their lives. Right. Uh, so that's why it's one of the ones in North America that gets so much attention. And it's such yeah. a densely populated area. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So, so how is an earthquake detected? So again, it's this, these vibrations, you've probably seen things like, like, um, they call it a seismograph, right? Yeah. And basically at it, at its most simple, it's a pretty simple machine that you can actually, you could build one if you wanted to. At, Who doesn't? <laughs> at its most simple, essentially, it's just a pencil on a piece of paper that is suspended and the pencil is essentially suspended. Um, so it's free moving. And then if there's an, if the ground shakes, the pencil is going to pick up those vibrations and it's going to draw on the line. It's going to draw a vibration and you can be, and then like these vibrations have a very particular shape. So you can tell that it's an earthquake. Like you can even see the P wave, the primary wave and the secondary wave. Cool. And then there's like some math that you can do that turns it into these, like this strength scale. So we often refer to like, we often, most people know about it as like the Richter scale. But the Richter scale mm. is the one that I had heard. And then in research for this, uh, I found out that they don't really use the Richter scale anymore. They've uh, they really switched over to one called the, what is it, moment magnitude scale? Yeah. So Richter scale has sort of become like, so obviously like Richter was the scientist that sort of first described some of the mathematics to right. calculating strengths of earthquakes. Yeah. And then over time, they found that like, oh, well, like this calculation only works for an earthquake through these types of mediums or detected in this way, or it doesn't really account for like different seismographs, different distances apart. And then at one point there were three different magnitude scales they were using. And then they kind of created a universal magnitude scale that's like kind of combines like all of the strengths of all of the scales and then compensates for all of their weaknesses. And just because it got so confusing to talk about all these different <laughs> earthquakes with different strengths. Um, so they kind of created this one singular number and that's the one that you like will hear reported on the news and stuff like that right mm -hmm. yeah they uh they moved away from the richter scale um because you know like davis was saying it was more limited so it would work uh best for earthquakes in southern california and only if they were hitting within about 600 kilometers of seismometers uh, and it was calculated from what just one type of earthquake wave that doesn't really help when measuring really really massive ones so they yeah they combined it with these other ones to make a more universal just a better one, one mm -hmm. that applies to more earthquakes, which is so more useful for science. Yeah. And so we call it like moment magnitude and moment is actually like, so moment doesn't mean like a single moment, moment. <laughs> <laughs> a special moment. No. It's a, a hallmark version of yeah. a seismometer. No. Yeah. So <laughs> moment is an actual like physical quantity. So it'd be like moment with a capital M and it is proportional to the slip on the fault. So this is again, this slippage that occurs. So you've got, say you've got all this buildup and then it slips. It's proportional to the amount of slip multiplied by the area of the fault that the surface slips over. 
And that, and so this is just like this physical quantity that's then used to calculate like magnitude. And then again, it's based off of all of this math by measuring like the height of the amplitude of the wave and, you know, versus this other amplitude, bunch of complicated like proportionalities and stuff. And then it gives you a number. And we typically, so we, we still colloquially use like the Richter scale. You wouldn't really be wrong to say the Richter scale. Like everyone would understand you if that's how you cho chose to talk about like the strength of an earthquake. But we often talk about like, so sometimes like five uh, magnitude earthquakes will occur and they don't make the news. Yeah. But then a six or a seven, even like a six won't really often make the news unless it like happens in a very specific area, triggers a tsunami or something like that. Mm. But a seven will almost always make the news because a seven is a very strong earthquake. That's the, the earthquake in Haiti was a 7.2. Yeah. And the reason is because it's not a linear scale. It's yeah. not like a two magnitude earthquake is twice as strong as a one magnitude earthquake. It's actually tenfold the strength. So it's, it's what's called a logarithmic scale. I was just going to say the word logarithmic. Yeah, logarithmic. <laughs> so like um, you you might be more familiar with the like with the term, the mathematic term like exponential, which is obviously you kind of think of the, um, oh, I'm going to make a really bad reference here. But like if you look at some of the COVID graphs. I was thinking the same one. <laughs> yeah, you see that like it's steady, steady, steady. And then there's this increase. And then all of a sudden it's shooting like straight up. And we've often talked about over the pandemic, like exponential growth of infections. Mm -hmm. And that's because you have these infections that are like multiple, like, like order, like orders of magnitude greater than the last one. Logarithmic is that sort of similar shape, but in the opposite. So it's actually like, I don't really know how to describe it visually, but like, um, imagine if we were going like straight up and then it kind of like plateaus. And the idea is that like, basically it may, means that like everything is then like 10 times great so the sit to go the same distance from like one from one to two is like 10 times the amount of force from each particular one it's very difficult to explain it's a lot of math <laughs> <laughs> but suffice to say a seven is not just like one bigger than a six mm -hmm. it's 10 bigger than a six but like bigger than that like it's so logarithmic as it increases exponentially it gets a lot bigger a lot faster and this is a tenfold, in, and the other thing is it's a tenfold increase in the measured amplitude of the earthquake. So again, we think about waves, they've got frequency, how often they're going up and down. They also have amplitude, which is how much they're going up and down. So if you think of a, you know, that squiggly line that often depicts a wave, amplitude is how tall the wave is. So it's a 10 times increase in the height of the wave that's measured, but that increase actually that tenfold increase every tenfold increase actually works out to a 31 times increase in energy release goodness <laughs> so for example a seven magnitude earthquake releases the equivalent of two quadrillion joules that is a basically meaningless number yeah because that was a like joule, quadrillion <laughs> a, a quadrillion is like uh, a quadrillion is a hundred trillion or th a thousand trillion, sorry. And oh, yeah. it is, and a joule is just a unit of energy. And like a, a joule, if you, if you do a lot of physics, it makes sense, but like, it's not really something that we measure anything. Yeah, in I, I can't remember with. the last time I was like, oh man, that's like this many joules. Like, I don't think I've ever said that. Yeah, it's just a unit of energy. Yeah. Um, and it was measured by a guy named Joule. Uh, uh, J-O-U-L-E, not yeah. Joule like the jewel in a crown. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so... Uh, but you know, again, it's a meaningless number because we don't really conceptualize energy in joules, but that is, that is the equivalent of 500 kilotons. So thousand tons of TNT. That's a lot. It's a lot so many. of energy. Uh, 
And so this is like, th that's why these are, they're so devastating. It's this insane release of energy. And it, again, like we were talking about, it takes this ton of energy to move the earth in this way. Uh, and this is why earthquakes are so damaging because you are, you are literally moving earth with, you know, the force of thousands, thousands of bombs, essentially. Mm -hmm. Fun. Yeah. And it can't even, it's something like um, a seven magnitude earthquake would release the same amount of energy as all minor earthquakes in a year. So a single seven magnitude earthquake is releasing the same amount of energy of all the earthquakes that occur in a year. Because earthquakes are actually occurring all of the time. Yeah. There are constantly earthquakes happening on Earth, but most of them are small. And basically it's under four magnitude. You don't even feel it. Really. And especially with any of the ones happening on that uh, Atlantic ridge, right? Because mm -hmm. they're underwater, mm -hmm. very, very far away from humans. We had this really interesting display um, at my university in the geo department, which, where I had a lot of my chemistry classes. And I used to love looking at this thing. So it was, basically it was a giant LCD TV screen and it was running a computer program that was connected to the internet. And it was a map of the earth and it had all of, it was basically connected to like all these seismographs all over the world. And it would put in like real time when earthquakes were occurring and then it had like a scale so it was sort of like a little red dot was a small earthquake and then it would have a running list of like all the earthquakes that had occurred and if it was like a major earthquake the but like the little location would kind of flash so you could see it but like you know i had classes like every second day in this area and i would go down there and every day there would be new earthquakes and so it really conceptualized like how much of this is constantly happening yeah this, the whole the whole thought of walking past that makes me so like anxious like i know i freak some people out with the bugs podcast and stuff <laughs> but like talking about this is what makes me like i, could, I just feel weird <laughs> Be, just being that aware of how much the earth itself is moving and it, it also really highlights this interesting thing of like, you know, seismograph technology and the effects of earthquakes have been like, they've been affecting humans for so, so long. Yeah. So now we have this super sophisticated network of measurement tools. Like they're, especially in these places where there are, where earthquakes are very common and they're very damaging, you have lots of these detectors. So you start to get this really great pool of information about all the seismic activity. And this is also like, it wouldn't be possible to tell where an earthquake occurs if it wasn't for the fact that we have all of these different um, measurement like locations all around areas. Because basically to locate the epicenter, what you're doing is you're seeing when the P wave occurs, then you're seeing when the secondary wave occurs. You're using that to create a measurement of like, okay, well, it's just like thunder and lightning, right? Yeah. So lightning happens, a few seconds later you get thunder. You can use that to tell you how many miles or kilometers away the storm is. Or sorry, the lightning strike was from where you are. Yeah. And it's the same thing. So you can use the P wave and then the secondary wave, the S wave, to say, okay, well, there's this much difference between the two waves. That mean, must mean that within 100 kilometers is where this earthquake occurred. And then you would draw a circle. And then, you know, the other uh, monitoring station on the, you know, 500 kilometers away on the other side of the fault would do a similar measurement and they would draw a circle. Then you all draw these circles and then there's a, there'll be a spot in the middle where all of them meet and you can say where they all overlap like a Venn diagram. You can say, yeah. well, this is where the earthquake had to occur because that's what all of these measurement tools are saying. And again, all of these waves are going out in every direction, including like down into the earth. 
right? right. So th- it's it's radiating in every direction, 360 degrees. Yeah, that sphere. makes sense. It wouldn't just go linearly. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's how you can kind of measure these things, which is quite interesting. So it's like a it'd be like if you were trying to if you were for some reason on like a big pond and it was still and someone dropped a pebble somewhere and you had like people placed around in different spots and they'd be like, oh, it hit me now, and then they could like measure that and then the other people would say, and then you could actually figure out where that rock was dropped. Yeah, or like, you ever watch like spy movies and they're like, we can contri- we can triangulate their position. Oh yeah, the and triangulation. Like, yeah, so it's like, <laughs> and, and in that it's like your cell phone pings off cell towers mm-hmm. and then they'll say like, oh, okay, like if we ping the phone from these towers, it tells us like it's this far away or this far away. And again, the towers are, are covering a circular area with right. their waves. You can overlay them on each other wherever they meet up. That's where your person must be. Right, because they ping off of all these cell towers. So we got them. It's the exact same thing. So you're essentially triangulating. <laughs> Triangulation's a little different. Triangulation comes from three, so you need three points of right. measurement to triangulate something. But it's the same idea. You draw a big sphere, then a circle, and you draw another circle based on the other measurement, and then where all three circles meet is where the the spies are. I don't know. We're gonna get them. We're gonna get those <laughs> underground spies. <laughs> exactly. So that's kind of how like detecting these earthquakes work, like how they're measured and like why, you know, like I can't even think of the last time there was an eight magnitude earthquake, but like an eight magnitude earthquake would like be beyond devastating. Yeah. Um, even like, you know, um, if you've ever been to Greece or you've seen fo- photos of it, right? Like the, 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 the Parthenon and all those locations are destroyed or like the Colossus of Rhodes doesn't exist anymore. And most of the belief of that is that there were these huge stone structures that collapsed because of earthquakes, like major earthquakes that occurred. Interestingly enough too, is that like, there's some belief like from our uh, anthropologists as well, that like there was a lot of understanding of earthquakes, like even in these ancient cultures and some of the ways that like, so partly because of the way they had to be built, but things like the Parthenon, right? The classic Greek structures have the columns, right? Yeah. The columns were not actually single solid pieces. Yeah. One, because it's incredibly difficult to cut marble that way and then transport it. Yeah, especially before like cranes. like. Mm-hmm. So, but they're actually made out of segments and there's some belief that the segments would have also assisted in dampening oh, earthquake movement. Because they can kind of like shift on top of each other, like Ex- little, like discs, right? Exactly. Oh. Exactly. Like discs in your spine, right? Like your spine is very good at, at withstanding those types of shock forces. It's the same idea. You've got all these discs that are sitting on each other. So cool, man. Mm-hmm. And it's really like, it's the, it's basically the same thing as when they design earthquake proofed. I'm doing air quotes as usual, but like, because like you can't really create anything that's like perfectly earthquake resistant yeah. because again, we're talking about so much force. Yeah. It's a thing that's mm. going to quake the earth. It's going to quake a house. Yeah, exactly. But you can build things in ways that make them more resistant to the forces. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's quite interesting is that they actually have in, uh, there's quite a few of them in Japan, especially because Japan is on one of these fault lines. Yeah. Obviously we kind of all know the story of like the Fukushima reactor yeah. and the tsunami, which was caused by an earthquake. Um, that was at sea. Was that a six? I can't quite remember what the strength of it was. Um, but yeah, it was, it was sort of out in the ocean and it's the same sort of thing, right? You think about like, if you're putting a wave through the earth and then you do that to water, it's the same. It's like dropping a pebble in a pond, right? Like it's going to create these huge ripples. It's all (laughs) this force for this wave. Um, and in fact, like same sort of thing, ancient cultures with this knowledge of earthquakes and stuff like that and tsunamis in japan there's ancient structures that people would that communities would put on hillsides because they would mark the high water point of 
tsunamis of the past and they would be marked like they had like a system and so the idea was that like if a tsunami were to occur and there were kind of there's certain warning signs for a tsunami because a tsunami is kind of quite a bit behind an earthquake um you that would tell people okay like you have to get up at least this high into the mainland like up you know because uh, Japan is actually quite mountainous yeah. and you have to get up this far into the inland onto the mountain to be safe from the earth from the tsunami. Man, people in the past figured out such incredible ingenious methods. Like mm-hmm. every time I learned I wasn't that interested in history or anything in school but as the more I learn about it you're just like what? they figured out what they did that's so smart. I know, it's one of those things that like as an aside like you think about like the library of Alexandria yeah. and like the writings of like Ptolemy had predicted that the earth and had like proved that the earth like orbited around the sun and was mm. a sphere and like all these things had been determined for like hundreds of years but like all of this knowledge like even and not even just the library of Alexandria but like that's the famous example of yeah. like this library that was raised when the civilization <laughs> fell and like thousands all this knowledge was lost and it's never been recovered it can never be recovered yeah. um you know even like they talk about like the secrets of Roman concrete. Like they've only yeah. just figured out some of the, like, I think it was that they would, they found the recipes for Roman concrete, but they could never make it behave the same way that the Roman concrete did. And, like the Roman concrete is really significant because like many of the aquifers and things that they created still exist and are right. like totally intact. And people are like, how did they build this? How did they create, you know, we barely figured out concrete that can do this or like <laughs> concrete has to be replaced every five years kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, or even the, the pyramids themselves. Yeah. Right. Like we still don't know. And you might be saying aliens, um, <laughs> but it's, the the engineering feat of those pyramids is is astounding like, or stonehenge stuff yeah, like that right yeah. we, th- these giant earthworks that people did before yeah we had like certain types of the same type of machinery that we think of today but they may have have had things that were similar yeah um but just to close the loop on the roman concrete Sorry. thing <laughs> Got excited about no, 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 it's fair they they found the recipes they repeated the recipes and the recipes would always call for water and obviously like in a 21st century mindset you think pure water right? Mm. It wasn't oh. as easy to get pure water when you were back in the day. So back a lot, in the day? <laughs> so a lot of it, so it was actually, it was seawater. Oh. It was salt water they That's were using. So it's just, it's it really interesting too of like, it, um, I, I was reading something and they put it really well of that like, if you were... <laughs> If you were writing a recipe for people a thousand years from now, you wouldn't specify, or if someone from a thousand years ago read a recipe today, like we just say like, well, you need a dozen eggs, but like a thousand years from now, are they going to know that it was chicken eggs? So they're going to be making, you know, cookies with ostrich eggs. Why do I need so many eggs? Like, right. alien eggs. Exactly. So it's very, it's like, it's really, it's just a really interesting, like kind of history thing. This is why cultural context is so important to any scientific understanding. Yes. And I wish we were taught it more in school. You just get taught these science things, but where they came from is so important and the time that they did. Yeah. So going back to earthquakes Earthquakes, after that quick quick little aside (laughs) of ancient cultures. But um, so this is the big thing is like there, especially because a lot of like major cities sit on these types of fault lines. Again, San Francisco, huge city. Yeah. LA, massive city. Huge, gigantic city. Right. The population density. There's people, um, you know, Mexico City is an area where yeah. there's tons of earthquakes. Also because Mexico City is essentially built on like a lake bed and it's like built on sand. Um, so the the waves propagate quite a bit through the buildings and things there. Yeah, it would. Yeah. And, and it's an area where there's constantly earthquakes. And so... There's a lot of attention put on to like, how do we create infrastructure in these places that is as resistant as possible 
two earthquakes. And so in Japan, they actually have these testing facilities where they have giant shake tables, like massive. Have you ever seen the, the crawler that used to use the, move the space shuttle? No. It's a giant platform, <laughs> essentially, that used to move the space shuttle. But these things are on the scale of this this crawler that used to move is the it, space shuttle. Is this the same sort of idea as if, if you went into, like, you're at a carnival and you went to, like, the fun house and there was a platform that shook? Exactly like that. But on this massive scale to the point where, because interestingly enough, too, is it's very difficult to test earthquake infrastructure true like truly if it's effective you can do designs on small shake tables and see oh it's kind of effective oh it's not really that effective but it really like it doesn't scale up very well that makes sense because it's weight right exactly and and again we're talking about you know you can shake a little shake table a whole bunch and that's like you know oh if you were to scale it up a thousand times it's this much force but we're talking about like logarithmic force (laughs) and so they have these massive shake tables where they will essentially build like three stories of a building with the technique that they would use to create better infrastructure. And then they'll just shake it and they'll (laughs) see what happens. Right. And they can do this in these controlled environments. So a lot of what earthquake proofing infrastructure really has to do with is basically creating structures that are not so rigid that any movement or vibration is going to break the joints. Essentially. So you think about most of our steel buildings. Yeah, I was going to say the skyscrapers, right? Exactly. You've got joists that are all holding them together. And then you have like foundation that goes deep into the ground. If it's even like a super tall skyscraper, even if it's an area that's never going to experience an earthquake, it has to be somewhat flexible because the wind is going to move it. Yeah. Right. And so you don't, you don't want it just snapping in half. Exactly. So realistically, like rigid buildings are very difficult to maintain in in all circumstances. Mm -hmm. So every building needs a little bit, everything needs a little bit of give and take, right. So that things can slide past each other so that metal can expand and contract in the heat or the cold. And so, basically what a lot of this earthquake infrastructure is is that it's basically building into the joints of a building the ability to separate in big shaking so as the whole thing is shaking around like that all these pieces are sort of separating from each other and then like rejoining so that the structure of the building remains sound and you're not getting breakages on these like really important linkages that are holding all of the force of the building together that's cool Mm -hmm. i didn't think that but of course that exists, right? Like it's like the crash test dummy phenomenon, but mm. on a big scale because you're dealing with something that is a, that is the biggest scale we know, right? Like it's the earth scale. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so they often call this like earthquake dampening because again, you mm-hmm. cannot prevent a building from feeling these forces or like build these for- build these things in such a way that they're completely immune to these forces, yeah. but you can build them in such a way that like they're going to be very strongly compensated and things like that. Like soundproofing. Exactly like that, right? You're trying to dampen the effect of these waves, give your building the ability to kind of move with something. It's, it's the classic like bend, don't break. Yeah. Right. Um, And then even in researching this, I discovered another one that's called like earthquake cloaking. And this is something that's a little bit more like, not science fiction. It's like, it's a real technology. It sounds more sci-fi. Yeah. (laughs) But it's more, it's, it, it's something that's more in like theoretical should work. I don't know. I think there's a few places where they've tried it and it has, does have some effects, but essentially what this involves is boring giant holes into the earth at like angles from the surface around infrastructure that you want to protect because not everything can be like retrofitted magically with these like earthquake proof, you know, materials and, and building types and things like that. 
And essentially what it does is it, it breaks up the ability of some of these waves to propagate through the earth. And then it channels the waves upwards towards the structures in such a way that you're not getting that strong, like lateral force that's going to okay. kind of shake them and pull them apart, but rather you're getting more of like a vertical force that's just going to sort of vibrate it or something oh. like that. It's quite fascinating. So this is something that they propose for like, if you have a whole city that's like, that needs to be protected, you could essentially bore an entire like barrier of these holes around the city. And that would help like prevent the worst aspects of an earthquake. It yeah. makes sense, but it also feels like, how how is that not just like weakening all the earth around it? That like, would it protect you for a little bit and then cause a different sort of collapse in the earth? But I'm sure there are people working on that part of the question. Yeah, and you're just bo you're just boring like a straight hole down, like you think of like a well shaft, right? Like you're not um, you're not like excavating the earth out underneath the city, creating like sinkholes <laughs> and stuff like yeah. that, right? And I think as well, it's like these aren't just like giant open air pits. Like you know, you probably cap the thing. It's just you're creating space in the earth for the vibrations to be kind of like dampened and things like yeah. that. Yeah. This these sorts of things are like a little bit further off, but it's just it was something that I came across that like from a scientific standpoint was super fascinating. It's very cool. Yeah. yeah. When, when you said cloaking, I imagined uh, when they talk about like spaceship cloaking, where they can make it like invisible because it bounces light off at the same, like it bounces the light off so you don't see it. So it's like cloaking. So I was like, oh, what are they gonna do? Like shoot the opposite waveform at the building and then the. But then I was like, that might make the that might make it worse. The <laughs> building's getting hit from two sides. And, and when I first read it too, because they used the word invisibility in this one like uh, MIT article, and oh, that nice. was actually the exact same thought that I had. <laughs> yeah. Was like I started thinking about like constructive and destructive waves. So like we talked about with light, if you have two waves that are moving in phase with each other, they build off of each other, yeah. right? So two speakers that are producing the same sound sound twice as loud. Mm -hmm. But if you could produce the exact opposite sound, like you do with soundproofing headphones, yeah. it becomes there's no sound. Yeah. The the noise canceling ones yeah exactly yeah. and so it's quite interesting because that's what i thought too i was like oh yeah. like if you detect the wave early enough do you send like the opposite equal opposite wave back down but then like how would you actually do that because again you would need to produce like thousands of kilotons of energy <laughs> so it's like probably not gonna work get the earthquake machine yeah exactly so that's what was interesting to like that's kind of what piqued my interest i was like well are you sending like a deconstruct uh, a destructive wave opposite to the earthquake how do you do it so fast and no it's more about destroying the wave's ability to like hit these buildings in the same way that it would like unimpeded essentially yeah, yeah. That makes sense it's like even like uh in tornado alleys they have like tornado breaks which are basically just like walls that are built in the in the middle of these flat areas where they prevent her uh, tornadoes from really being able to like travel because they, mm. they break up the cycle of the storm, especially once they've touched down yeah. they break up the ability of the storm to move and then it you know they break the funnel and then it kind of destroys the cyclone um, so it's the same sort of idea. You're kind of creating like a break as opposed to like, yeah, making, like truly making it invisible or like destroying the wave before it hits you. Yeah. I guess mm -hmm. that makes sense. Cause with the wall, you're putting a break in the medium it's traveling through, which is air. Mm -hmm. So in this, you're boring a hole, you're making an empty space in the medium it's traveling through, which is earth. Yeah. And even if it's a wave that can move both through earth and air, it's going to behave differently in air. And so it's going to lose yeah. some of its strength and things like that. Cause again, right. the particles of air are a lot further apart. Yeah. So it's harder to, you know, it takes more energy to move them. You can't like shake them the same way. Yeah, exactly. Just, the, the force doesn't translate in the same way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Cool. Yeah. Um, but if you, uh, if you don't have the ability to, you know, change your building or <laughs> bore a giant hole in the ground, 
there are some things you can do to prepare yourself for earthquakes, aren't there, Davis? Yes. <laughs> so earthquakes are, again, are really tricky because they're a low probability event and you have no idea when one's going to happen. But when right? they do, they're bad. Exactly, especially strong ones. Yeah. So there's the classic tips are like, you want to get basically like, if you, you know, this is sort of one of those things like we live in Calgary. There's very, very, very low risk of earthquakes, powerful earthquakes here in Calgary. It's although, true. you know, you never know. Never say never. Uh, exactly. Um, <laughs> like we are right by the Rocky Mountains. This is the fault's not particularly active on this side. It's more on the coast side. Yeah. We uh, get more uh, weird stuff from the sky rather than weird stuff from the yeah, ground. Yeah, exactly. And so, you, so basically there's like you want to find places in your home where there's a strong structure above you that can protect you if the building collapses. Essentially, that's really all you're preparing for. So a lot of it is times is like you want to go under doorways because right. doorways are often designed to be load bearing. They have a big cross beam over top. You know that there's a joist there. Like right. your ceiling has joists in it. But it's very difficult to know where those joists are unless you, for some reason, have an exposed ceiling. And everything can um, fall around them. Exactly. Exactly. So you, when you find a doorway, a doorway you know has a joist. It has this structure built into, especially wooden homes, structure built into the frame. Well, like if, you, if you've ever tried to do renos on your house and it's like, you can't take that wall out. It's a load-bearing wall. Exactly. It's got these like very important structural elements in it compared to your other wall that's like, oh, that's just drywall. Exactly. And so, and so there's that, or like the other piece of conventional wisdom is like you get under a table. And again, the idea is essentially just creating a strong structure over top of you so that if the building comes down or if things around you come down, they're not going to hit you directly. They're going to yeah. fall on something and you're going to create like a pocket if you were to get unfortunately buried. Um, right. Probably a... Any table would be better than no table, but a strong table table is better than a weak table. Yeah, absolutely. Course. And so, and then there's a number of other things you can do. Uh, like most, it's always a good idea to have something of an emergency kit in your right. home. Same thing with your car, but in your uh, an earthquake specific kit should have things like uh like an axe in it, a mm. rope in case you need to be pulled out, a shovel so you could dig yourself out. Light. And, and signaling devices. Yeah, yeah, light and signaling devices, especially like whistles, oh. so that if people are looking for you, you can make lots of noise and yeah. and signal to where you are. Um, but that's like, and again, and the other thing is that you want to, if, if you're in an area where there's lots of risk of earthquake, you want to take note of the objects in your home that are likely to fall. Yeah. So for example, in like the recording studio, we have like a bookshelf here. A bookshelf is really likely to tip and fall, especially if it's filled with a bunch of heavy objects. And if it's not anchored very well. Exactly. So yeah. you want to stay away from objects like that, things that can fall on you. Yeah. And then again, protect yourself, like to create a structure around you if things are going to fall on you. And stay away from objects that are going to be extra dangerous if they if they do fall or mm -hmm. break, like windows. Stay away from windows. Yeah. Because uh, as they sh as as the building shakes, it could very easily crack or shatter your window. Yeah. Um, if you have a whole room of Fabergé eggs, probably don't spend your earthquake in there. <laughs> and they and yeah, exactly. And <laughs> that's you know, a weird example, but and, all right. And just like we were saying earlier with aftershocks, so like the thing about an earthquake too is the danger is not completely passed, even if right. there's not a strong aftershock. After an earthquake happens, like you've got you got to think about all the things that are in like in the ground in a city, right? You've got your water mains, you've got your gas lines, you've got your sewage lines. All these things are electrical. going to be electrical are going to be jumbled up by the action of an earthquake, right? So even if you can't see it, you might have gas leaks or you might have like, you know, down power lines outside, which would be easier to see. But like, you know, you may have all these breakages in the infrastructure below you and around you that make the area like very, very dangerous. So in fact, even with the, the that major earthquake that happened 
happened in San Francisco, one of the deadliest parts of it wasn't the earthquake so much itself, which was extremely deadly, but there was a massive fire that broke out after the earthquake happened. And then, of course, then you have all the first responders out and it's not as easy. And then you've got like all this rubble in the streets. It's hard to move around. You know, the firehouses themselves might have been not like, you know, severely damaged. So it's so much more difficult to get critical uh, care and infrastructure where it needs to be when everything's kind of been destroyed like this. So, um, so yeah, earthquakes, it's really the, like the aftermath of the earthquake that's like, can be so dangerous. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But yeah, that kind of like, (laughs) it's kind of a scary (laughs) note to end it on. But, uh, I mean, I guess a more positive note that it ties in with the the hurricanes as well as after natural disasters, there's usually difficulty in the government that the government has getting aid out to people. And like, I think we mentioned this in our Under the Heat Dome podcast, where once you have like a natural disaster, an event occur, you could have these blockages in the roads. It could be harder to get um, help to you. So there, there's been a lot of, like people have seen a lot of when these do, natural disasters do occur, the stronger the community is, mm. the better their recovery can be because they all start to pull together and they start to help each other and they reach out to each other and they share resources and they help get resources to each other uh, because they're in the area and they have access. So if you, if you have a good, like, if you have your good emergency kit, then you might be able to help others better. I mean, be careful. Obviously, don't put yourself into a more dangerous situation because then you could get trapped too. And then there's two people to be saved. Um, but if you're able to offer help and it's it's relatively simple or like once the, the main danger has passed, if you're able to help in the rebuilding effort, uh, that community aspect of it can make a huge, huge difference in the recovery. Excellent. Well said. And on that, let's switch into hurricanes. Hurricanes. Bum, bum, bum. So, yeah, like I mentioned, that uh, the really big one that recently went through was Ida. And this, yeah, went from the Caribbean, so Venezuela and Cuba, up the east coast of the U.S. So it hit Louisiana, which this was the second in damage and intensity after Katrina. So it was pretty bad for Louisiana. And then it... Uh, hit Mississippi and Alabama and Virginia and Maryland and Delaware and Pennsylvania and New Jersey and New York. I remember seeing images yeah. of the the subways in New York flooding uh, from this in Connecticut and Massachusetts. And some of those states got hit worse than others. The ones more inland uh, might have got hit with things like tornadoes, which got a lot of wind and hurricanes. Um, and then the ones on the coast obviously got hit with all of it. Uh, and then it moved up into Canada and Nova Scotia, PEI, Quebec and Newfoundland and Labrador. Again, there are links in our description if you would like to uh, look into helping out with some relief efforts for these. I'm not going to say a fun fact because that's not in good taste, uh, but one in five people apparently live in the path of a hurricane because most of our major cities are near the water. Yep. So, yeah, hurricanes are mighty interesting. Uh, They're a fascinating, like, force of nature, the way they form and things like that, so... Do you want to talk about how they form? You want me to take it away? I mean, you can take it away, man. (laughs) Talk about spinning air and stuff. Yeah, so we (laughs) typically talk about... uh, So a hurricane is sort of a colloquial term for a type of storm. Uh, A hurricane is the one that's commonly used in North America. But scientifically, the term for this type of storm is a tropical cyclone. Again, we get cyclone because of its cycling nature. You know, we've all seen these images of a, of a uh, hurricane storm, and they're always spinning. They've got the big eye at the center. I think there's an ice cream 
called a cyclone. Yeah. And it's like, yes. it's got the spiral, right? This is that yeah. spirally spinny shape. Yeah, it's like a popsicle. Yeah. Um, That's what I was trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and then in other parts of the wor- world, they have like different names for them. So you often hear like in parts of Asia and like India and things like that, they might be cyclones or typhoons, depending on the area of the region that you're in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but again, the, the, they're called tropical cyclones. And the reason that they have this name, and we'll probably just use tropical cyclone and hurricane interchangeably. Yeah. Um, but the why they're called this is because they're formed over warm air around the equator, like over warm water in the equator. But not on the actual equator line. Mm-hmm. So they, they don't form on the actual equator line and they don't form in the poles. Yeah. They need a specific set of conditions of like warm air that has enough movement in it that it can uh, encourage the motion of these tropical cyclones. Mm -hmm. So as most people know, hot air rise or hot things tend to rise. So even in in the water, hot water rises to the surface. And you Um, might've felt this if you're in a pool. Yep. And like the surface layer of a pool, especially if it's like springtime, will be nice and warm and then the lower layers are cold. Mm -hmm. Or like the top, when we talked about the heat wave episode, uh, top of your house is warmer than the basement. Exactly. So what's happening is you have all of this vapor because there's there is some of the water that's evaporating off the surface of the ocean. You have all this vapor and air mixed together and they're getting hotter and hotter and they're going to start to rise. As they rise, they basically are vacating the space below them and they're creating a low pressure zone. And in similar to how things want to go from high temperature to low temperature, things want to go from high pressure to low pressure. And, so, and mm-hmm. low pressure, again, being that where there's there's fewer air molecules there. Yeah. Because all the air molecules moved up with the high the high heat, the high pressure area. Yeah. So they're vacating a little bit of space. Now the air, the other air, the higher pressure air from around it wants to come in. It gets heated up. And in the same way, it's going to start to rise. So it's going to keep bringing more and more air in and cycling it upwards and upwards and upwards. And it basically creates this like engine-like process. You have all this warm water, all this air around it, and it's being funneled upwards and it's going to start to form like clouds and things like that. If the conditions are right, it's going to keep growing and it's going to grow into this massive storm and then it's going to begin to spin. And so the spinning is actually happening because of the rotation of the Earth. And the curvature of the Earth. Yes. The fact that Earth is a sphere and it's spinning. Yeah, so hurricanes or cyclones that are formed on the northern hemisphere, so above the equator or to the north of the equator, and those that are formed to the south of the equator actually spin in different directions. And this is because of a... Uh, an effect called the Coriolis effect. And it basically just has to do with the fact that the earth is always spinning. Things at certain latitudes of the earth are actually moving slower than things that are at the equator because the earth is a sphere and it's moving around. The earth is a sphere. (laughs) (laughs) And basically it causes things to spin in different directions. So, uh, so the storms that hit like North America are always spinning counterclockwise. And then the storms that hit, you know, the Southern parts of the globe are always spinning clockwise. And it's just, again, it's just an effect of, the way that these storms are formed, and then the way that the Earth moves. I don't know if this is a myth, because I haven't looked into it, but they always say, like, the water in a toilet in Australia spins the other way. Is that the same, or is that a lie? I, <laughs> I, I, this is one of those ones, that, yeah, this is, like, one of those, like, junior high science facts that always comes up. And, yeah. like, I do think it's true. I Like, I personally have never been to Australia, so I cannot confirm or deny. If you know, <laughs> please tell us. Yeah, Kyle. <laughs> Kyle's been to Australia. Yeah. You can tell us. Yeah, um, Kyle. <laughs> but, yeah, so uh, I can't quite remember. All I ever remember is this, like, the episode of The Simpsons. It's where always The Simpsons. Well, it is. Like, there's, a, there's an episode of The Simpsons for every Everything. scenario. But I was just remember the one 
one where they're at like the U.S. Embassy and they're like, because yeah. Bart's like desperate to see if the toilet's yeah, turning yeah. the other way, and they're like, oh, actually, we installed this like fancy machine to make Americans feel more at home, <laughs> and it's like giant instrument, like like it's like this huge metal thing like ratcheted to the top of the toilet to make it spin the right way around. It's really funny. And Bart's so disappointed. Yeah. I so, any- <laughs> I'm not 100% sure. I don't I don't really think so cuz I think it mostly just has to do with the way the toilet is designed to push water back down it. But, but you I let us know. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't prepare for this. Yeah, I didn't look it up. <laughs> I didn't I didn't expect that question. <laughs> but, but, as with like 90% of my questions, like left field. I know field. you should you should submit your list of questions <laughs> to me before the show so that I can have a chance to research them. It's like when people go on like the, like like late night talk shows, like they basically do the interview beforehand where they say like yeah. these are the questions I'm gonna ask you. Nah, man, we're doing it live. Because everybody wants to look good on those shows. You do look good here, Davis. Yeah, because no one can see me. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we have this, we have this spinning, mm-hmm. uh, and then this, all of this spinning, regardless of what direction it's spinning, creates an eye of the storm mm-hmm. right in the center. Which we can go back to Davis's favorite movie, Day After Tomorrow. The Day After Tomorrow, one of my favorite movies. Yeah, there's a I giant remember. hurricanes in that movie. And I remember there's a moment where someone gets into the eye, or they, they get into the eye of it, right? Mm-hmm. And they're like, okay, briefly. <laughs> yeah. Well, even, like, the eye of the hurricane is one of those things that comes up, like, in hurricane survival. Yeah. Because it, it sometimes tricks people into thinking that the danger is past, but you're actually, like, in the eye, and it's the rest of the storm is going to blow through. So sometimes people will, like, leave their storm cellars and things like that, even though, like, the hurricane is still happening. Uh, but yeah, the, the eye is then like, it's just because of the spinning motion. It's a low pressure area in like the center of the storm. And then the high pressure air is coming down into it. And again, it's really creating this like engine like effect. Mm. And that's why like they often talk about like the wall of the eye of the hurricane is actually like one of the most intense parts of the hurricane, Mm. because that's where you have like all of this force really like spinning around essentially like an invisible barrier of air that's been created by like all these forces happening at once. So once you have this storm that starts spinning, you have what's called a tropical storm. And that's when the wind reaches about 39 miles per hour. So you think about the wind moving around in this circle, it's going 39 miles per hour. Or 63 kilometers per hour. Thank you for putting the conversion in. You're welcome. Uh, I I was ahead of the game on that. (laughs) Yeah, that one thing. I was just going to multiply it by 1.6 in my mind and try to say that. Yeah, see, I don't want to do that. You are much smarter than me for that. and then, and then it's a cyclone or a hurricane when they're get, when it's getting above seventy four miles per hour or one hundred and twenty kilometers per hour. <laughs> and and yeah, so that's like so that's how you get these different classifications of storm. And then storm these storms tend to weaken when they make landfall because they're no longer being fed by this action of the warm water around the equator or around that part of the ocean feeding this engine of a storm. That makes sense. Yes. Of course. It's it's <laughs> elementary. Thanks, Watson. <laughs> yeah. Come on. I'm Sherlock. Yeah, but, but, but you didn't say it, so. <laughs> um. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> and so, and like, and then... The strength of a hurricane, you're often, you'll hear, like, referred to as a category. And the categories are just ranked, um, this is more of a linear scale than compared to the Richter scale. So a category five hurricane is not 10 times, 30 times more powerful than category four. It's that it's more about the speed at which the winds are going. Typically speed, Mm -hmm. there's usually a little bit about storm surge as well. But it's more about, like, the speed that you can measure the hurricane moving at in terms of the speed of the wind. Right. And the strongest... Uh, 
strongest ones are category fives. I believe this is what Katrina was. Yes. When um, Katrina made landfall, it was a category five. Yeah. Yeah. And so these have wind speeds higher than 157 miles per hour or 252 kilometers per hour mm -hmm. and storm surges of over 19 feet or uh, or almost six meters, which is a lot. These yeah. are big, big mean storms. Mm -hmm. Um, and they're monitored typically by satellites. I know in our light podcast, we did talk a little bit about using different types of waves. I think it was the radio waves. Maybe the one that comes after. Was it microwaves? It was the microwaves, microwaves. you were talking about that can penetrate the clouds. Yeah, yeah, they can penetrate the clouds so you can see what's going on under them, which is good in hurricanes. Because, I mean, hurricanes were moving water vapor, which is clouds. Um, so you can monitor it with these satellites using different types of light and different sort of radars. and. Of course, like we were talking about with the ancient cultures, being able to work around these different systems and having all these ingenious methods. Um, indigenous peoples of the Caribbean, actually, for long, long, long time, knew the early warning signs of hurricanes because they would look for the high, fluffy clouds. This is what precedes a hurricane. And frigate birds, which are different types of seabirds in these regions, coming home to roost at unusual times. Hmm. So once again, looking to the animals because the animals... Well, what, these are seabirds, so they're out there, um, and they're going to feel it first, and they're going to come seek safety, and if they're coming in at a weird time, animals are very much on a schedule for the most part, and if they're going off of this this schedule, then it's for some serious reason, usually. Mm -hmm. And in like certain parts of Asia, you might hear like talk of like, oh, it's monsoon season and yeah. things like that. And again, it's this understanding, even we talk about hurricane season in North America, mm -hmm. but it's this understanding of like, okay, well, it's typically around these times of year that the conditions are right for these storms to form and that's when they form. And so people start to kind of predict when you, when you observe the natural world for long enough, you start to pick up on these patterns and then you can plan around those patterns. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or like rainy season, dry season, that all... Mm -hmm correlates to water and weather and uh, hurricane damage, like we mentioned with the storm surges and the wind. So a lot of the hurricane's damage is going to come from water and wind. The hurricanes dump massive amounts of water because they're, they're carrying all of this water from the ocean. And then when they get onto land, it's no longer feeding the system. So it's all going to come down onto land. And this is what causes flooding, like uh, was recently seen in a bunch of places, but in New York is the, the imagery that sticks out in my mind. Yeah, my one of my cousins lives in like a suburb of of New York State. Like they're they're not I think they're close to New York City, but they're not in like Manhattan or anything. And they didn't really get any terrible flooding, but they had something like five inches of rain in a single night. Which is a wow. lot of rain when you think about it. Like you don't think about all oh, five inches is not that much. But like when you think about that's five inches over like every area for like yeah. hundreds of like for like this hundred square area hundred square mile area kind of thing it's a lot of water yeah and it's a lot of water for like the systems to handle your yeah. sewages and things like that yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll we'll get into this more later but mm -hmm. a place like new york is very much a concrete jungle so there's nowhere for the water to go into mm -hmm. beyond these like little grates in the ground and that only has so much capacity you know yeah um yeah so the storm surges uh these big amounts, these massive amounts of water falling from the sky, uh, they can break levees. And this is also as it comes off of the ocean. Uh, and levees are like walls. They're like the storm walls you see built up. So the most basic ones might be made out of like sandbags, mm -hmm. right? You pile up a bunch of sandbags, um, but you can have much more advanced ones as well. So sometimes you, it, it's very similar to like a berm. So sometimes yeah, where yeah. rivers flood, you will build berms, which are, again, it's just a big barrier. Yeah. Um, you, you may have seen like, um, 
I mean, I always remember from the flood in Calgary, like we actually went down and watched the berm get built and they had like excavators just dumping dirt onto main roads around the, around the river to try to build up this barricade that would hopefully channel some of the floodwaters away from certain areas and like prevent it from getting into downtown. Um, there's only so much you can do, especially with like that type of flooding, yeah. but it's... Especially it, once yeah. it's already started. Yeah. But a levee is like a giant version of it for hurricanes typically or floodwaters. But storm surges can break them. They can break these levees and the flood the low-lying areas uh, near the coast and damage the coastal infrastructure. Or even going back to the uh, the flood in Calgary, like, I wasn't out here for it, but <laughs> I've lived here five years. I obviously know <laughs> a little bit about it by now. Um, and if you look at the where, like, if you look at the map of Calgary and you look at where it flooded, it mostly flooded, obviously, along the lower areas from the river in what is called a flood plain, right? This is a, a lower-lying area of ground of, around the river where traditionally or historically through the history of the world, um, if the river overflowed, it would flow into these floodplains and maybe get reabsorbed through there if they were, like, meadow and grasslands and things or they were filled with plants that could absorb or that were used to being a little, like, little waterlogged and things. But here, a lot of human civilization, because rivers were a source of water and a source of transportation um, and to transport goods and things, a lot of human civilization was built along rivers within these floodplain areas, which is exactly what downtown Calgary and a neighborhood here called Kensington and stuff, they're all within these low-lying areas close to the river. Yeah. It's, it's very similar to, like, we were talking about uh, with the hurricanes at the beginning, like, one in five people living in the path of a hurricane because so many people live on the coast. Yeah. Very similar to like why there's so much infrastructure along rivers and things like that. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Uh, and then uh, in addition to all of this water, we have wind. Wind moving around very, very quickly. As we mentioned, like category fives, wind speeds are higher than 252 kilometers per hour. Which I'm going to keep saying because when I did that conversion, I was like, that is, that is a lot. Yeah. It'd be very uncomfortable. Like you can't even really get like most most like conventional vehicles can't even do two hundred K. No. Like and your and then your vehicle's not even like um not tuned to do that. So like <laughs> yeah. your like your wheels can't really handle it and stuff. So it's like you think about that, like the fastest you've probably ever gone in your car and then add another like sixty to eighty kilometers on top of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh and these can uh, these can actually cause tornadoes inland. Like, mm. that was some of the effect that happened from Ida in more of the inland. Mm. They were having little... And I don't know how bad the tornadoes are, but it kind of makes sense because wind's going to be able to carry farther than the rain, right? Mm -hmm. um, so you, I think of a hurricane now, after all this research, like a tornado plus water. And that is really, like... And that's one of the things, like, there's often a conversation of, like, well, what's more dangerous, a tornado or a hurricane? Because tornadoes will generally have, like, high, like a, a Category 5 tornado or an F5 tornado has a lot more, a lot higher wind speed. Like, we're yeah. talking into, like, the 300 miles an hour kind of th range or whatever. Like, wow. it's so fast. I had to look it up because I was like, <laughs> I was like, what does this compare to? And so we typically talk about, you know, tornadoes have a lot more energy um, in terms of the wind speed. But tornadoes are often very short-lived. And they take very specific conditions to form uh, and they're smaller. But like you talk about this 
tropical storm, this tropical cyclone, and it's building up all this energy over days and days and days, and then it's this huge area, and then it's, again, you're combining, just like you said, the wind and the rain, and it's just this double whammy, and it's so prolonged, and again, uh, tornadoes tend to dissipate very quickly. Hurricanes, as we're starting to see especially now, are, will travel all the way up the coast, especially, or or get very far inland um, before they lose all of their energy. Absolutely. Move on to something a little less uh, about the destructive side of hurricanes. Uh, might have noticed we're talking about like Ida and Katrina. Uh, so they have lots of uh, fun names. There's a lot of female names. So hurricanes used to be named based on their uh, longitude and latitude, but this was uh, cumbersome. It's just a bunch of numbers, and it was likely to result in error because you have all of these numbers, right? If you're trying to like communicate quickly and people are in a panic, it's not going to be the easiest thing to uh, get across. And this could also cause problems if there were two storms happening in different places, but that kind of were close enough for radio overlap, then you like, you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be getting the accurate data because you'd be getting data about the other storm. Uh, but if you know like, okay, this is Hurricane Ida and this is Hurricane Katrina, you're, you're going to know which one you're talking about. It would be like trying to tell someone the title of a book by giving them its Dewey Decibel number. It's like, <laughs> sure, that works. And it, in a certain sense, is the better way to do it because it's, like, the more, like, specific code accurate. Yeah. But it's also, like, entirely useless. Yeah. So. <laughs> like, I don't know my latitude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's 38 degrees north plus 10 seconds plus the... Yeah, it's very complicated. <laughs> if you've ever seen, like, longitude latitude coordinates, like, yeah. you can imagine how complicated that would be to say over, like, the radio or yeah. back in the day over, like, a telegraph. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it would take too long to write. Yeah. You'd be hit by the storm. Yeah. Um, so, uh, some in the East Indies in the 1800s, like a lot of things in the 1800s, were based on religious names. They were based on saint names. Um, so around, like, the date, because there were a lot of saints' days. So they were named after the saint day that they formed on. Yeah, so most saints, uh, I'm gonna, a little bit of knowledge here from my good old Catholic boy upbringing. Yeah, um, fill us in. <laughs> so pretty much every saint has a feast uh, so you'd be like the feast of St. Anthony or whatever. And like, oh. they're all just specific days of, of the year. Yeah. Right. Okay. That's pretty much it. That's all it is. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Davis's, uh, Catholic upbringing. Hooray. <laughs> uh, and then they started switching them over to more colloquial names. And up until 1978, only female names were given to storms in the U S, uh, which is, you know, so something about, they were probably named by men. They're like all oh, these big, these big turbulent emotional things. Yeah, there's definitely baby names. There's definitely something to be said there for sure, yeah. for sure. Um, but now both male and female names are used. Still more female names, um, but there is there are male names who are brought in as well. Um, and this is a strict naming convention by the World Meteorological Organization. Uh, that changes. Uh, there's actually a list that changes every six years, or. Yeah, a list for six years of names. So they'll kind of cycle through. So like the storms in 2021 took me, I was like, what year is it? The storms in 2021 will have certain names like Ida. And then next year, the storm that hit, like if there's a storm expected at the same time, it will have the next name. It'll have the 2022 name, which will, is already determined. You can actually look at lists of these online, um, which I did because I was trying to find out if there was a Sarah, a Hurricane Sarah, and there is the next uh, the next one will be in 2018. Um, so Sarah, the name, not with an H, so it's spelled wrong. 
Sorry, but it is. In 2018, 2018 already happened. (laughs) (laughs) Right. It happened in 2018. And then the next, Sarah will be used again in 2024. Um, And Sarah actually replaced Sandy because if a hurricane is devastating enough, like Katrina, the name will be retired. And this is mostly to uh, kind of honor the devastation that was wrought with this hurricane and prevent confusion going forward because a really devastating hurricane is more likely to be remembered in history. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you heard tomorrow that like Hurricane Katrina was going to make landfall, it would cause confusion because yeah. everybody knows the story of Katrina, but like they don't you're not going to necessarily immediately associate it with a new hurricane. Exactly. Yeah. So, Katrina was retired, Sandy was retired, um replaced by Sarah. There is no Hurricane Davis. Sorry, Davis. Yeah, it's not super surprising. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there was a Hurricane David, which was re- replaced by Hurricane Danny. So David was replaced by Danny, which I find funny because my dad is David and my brother is Daniel. Oh, so there you go. That's just, there you go, family. (laughs) And it's interesting too, because like the naming convention of the hurricane, it's, it's based off of like, it's, it's. Uh, not the English alphabet, but it's like the international phonetic alphabet. Oh. Yeah, which is why sometimes like some of them seem like it, it used to, it, it's supposed to be like kind of this alphabetical order, but it seems slightly off from that. And it's because it's not based on a, like the English alphabet, the phonetic international alphabet, which is used for things like communication between ships that are from different countries and things like that. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. I was pretty sure I saw one that was Hickama, which starts with a J, mm-hmm. but it's not pronounced like it's pronounced Hickama. Yeah. So that makes sense now. Yeah. Yeah, so there you go. Naming convention. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So there's this interesting thing, right? So you're talking about a little bit like there's more female names or like Storms used to have all these female names. So there's actually some interesting statistical analysis that has been done uh, over hurricanes since like the 50s that has pointed to some evidence that female named hurricanes are typically result in larger loss of life than the male hurricanes. Now, colloquially, Mm. I've heard that this is like, so the researchers, the paper I was reading, like they didn't make a specific claim of like, this is why, because obviously that's not what they were doing. They were doing a statistical analysis on loss of life for all these hurricanes back to the 50s. And again, obviously it was up until 78 that they all only had female names. But if you do the right statistical analysis, you can kind of compensate for the fact, well, there's more sample on one side than the other. Um, But there is like a lot of evidence that points towards like there are psychosocial factors that lead to this. And some, there's some belief that people take female named hurricanes less seriously. They perceive of the danger as lower (laughs) for whatever reason. Uh, For whatever reason. And there's some belief like this is one of the things that contributed to Katrina being such a deadly disaster. A big part of what contributed to Katrina though, was the fact that um, some of the modeling predicted that Katrina was not going to make landfall in New Orleans. And then it changed direction or like the belief was that it was going to go this one direction and kind of head up more of the coastline. And then it ended up hitting like directly into Louisiana. And so um, I think it was, I think it was Bush at the time, like he sort of made a statement that made it sound like it wasn't going to make landfall. Mm. And so a lot of the evacuation efforts kind of stalled. Like people weren't as quick to get out of the area as if they had been told, like, it is definitely going to hit you. You need to leave. So it's just, again, one of those things that like Katrina, especially it's why it comes up so often. It's this case study in how like emergency management or preparedness can go so wrong because it's all these small elements that led to this massive disaster and huge loss of life. Yeah, and that would be just another thing to caution about, like, with, like, don't leave after the aftershocks. Remember, this is weather, right? And, like, 
you can look at the weather in the morning, like you look at a weather app and by the afternoon it's different, right? Because it's so hard to predict the weather. And that applies for giant weather storms as well, especially these really big ones. And sometimes they think it's only going to be a category one or two, but it can pick up so much more energy than they expected. So it can always get a lot, lot worse. So if you're in the path of anything like this, understand that your data is going to be constantly changing and updating and it's the earth and the earth does what it wants. And it doesn't really care about our predictions. Mm -hmm. um, and to uh, continue on with the Hurricane Katrina and the preparedness, one thing that I remember a lot from hearing about Hurricane Katrina and the aftermath of it was that the levees were, were very poorly prepared. Yeah, there's some stuff that's come out since I believe that like... They were not built with the proper materials. Yeah. Uh, the the was like concrete was very poor. Yeah, corners were cut and yeah, glass were cut. exactly. And it's just one of those things like you never expect some of these things to happen or to happen so, so, so severely. And like it's only every so often that you need this infrastructure to be at its best. So it's easy to slip through the cracks when things like aren't like this aren't happening. Mm -hmm. uh, it's also um, New Orleans is one of these cities that like it's on the bayou essentially. And it's very low lying to the point where I think I think New Orleans is actually below sea level. Oh, wow. But because of, like, the higher lands around it and things like that, like, New Orleans is, like, a very low point in the in this area of Louisiana. Uh, yeah, so throughout, throughout this area where Katrina hit, uh, you had levees and flood walls that failed because they were improperly made or just not made to withstand this, this type of force or were breached by water, which is when water, like, breaks through it, right? Mm -hmm. Uh and 80% of the city of New Orleans, because it's so low-lying, was flooded uh, to a depth of more than three meters in some neighborhoods. Like, I'd be, we'd all be fully underwater. Three meters is pretty yeah. tall, right? It's 10 feet. Mm -hmm. None of us are 10 feet. Um, and Katrina also hit at high tide, which is another big problem, right? Like, we've all, if you've ever heard about, like, the Bay of Fundy out in Nova Scotia? New Brunswick? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, East Coasters. Uh, but the Bay of Fundy is an area where low tide is like super low and you can like get really far out. And then high tide is like really, really high. Like if a boat is moored at high tide, it will be on the on the, the sand at low tide because tide recedes so far back uh, like tw into the ocean and it goes so much lower. And then at high tide, so you can imagine if you if you had a hurricane hit at low tide, you have all this extra space, like meters of extra space for water to build up before it's going to breach your levees. But at high tide, you're already at like the highest normal level, and then it doesn't have to do. It doesn't have to work. Not work that much harder. That's <laughs> don't personify the storm, Sarah. Uh, the storm doesn't have to be that much worse in terms of its magnitude in order to breach your levees and to flood your city. Yeah, so if you're talking about like a storm surge of several meters, right? So these are like the waves and the swells in the water up to a certain height. And then you're adding on top of that the height of high tide. Yeah. So now you're saying like you got your 50 foot levee, but tide's coming up 30 feet. These are random numbers. And then your storm surge is 19 feet, right? Well, now you're all the way up to the top of your levee and it's much more likely to, to break or for water to go over top of it and things like that. Yeah. Absolutely. And if you've seen some of the like, historical um, dam failures that have happened. Basically, as soon as water starts going over a structure like that, um, like pouring over it, there's a very famous example. Uh, I cannot remember the name of it right now, but the dam was not, it wasn't sluiced properly. Like they weren't flooding water out of it properly and water started to come over the top of the dam. And within minutes, the entire dam collapsed Whoa. because it completely destroys the infrastructure of how a dam is built. That makes sense. Very similar to a levee. 
So it's, you know, but again, with New Orleans, it was different. It was that like these levees were not properly constructed and they broke before they even got to that point. Yeah. Um, and this is, I mean, it links into our conversation of the change in climate that we had the in our other podcast of it's much easier or it it's much better to be prepared than to be reactive. Mm-hmm. Right. And if you can be prepared and you can build your materials properly and it might be hard, like David was saying, if you have... Um, these things only happen once in a while. So you think like, well, why would I put all of this money when like a lot of governments don't have enough money? So they'll put money into where they think or they'll put it in the wrong places, like pockets, um, <laughs> depending on your government. <laughs> but so they, they won't spend the money doing this thing that is preventative for something that like might happen, but like down the road, especially if it's with it. But if uh, you have like a North American government structure, which they're changing all the time. Um, but not doing that preparation leads to much worse consequences when you're dealing with something like a big, big weather system. So what are some of the other types of infrastructure things that are done in these areas then, Sarah? (laughs) All right, I'm going to answer it. (laughs) So there's lots of other things that can be done in some of these areas to uh, reduce the impacts of, uh, of a hurricane. So a lot of areas that are in the paths of hurricanes and experience them quite frequently, uh, even like less severe ones will have hurricane proofed infrastructures or like you'll have like, you know, so like in any city there's building codes. So like your house has to have certain things to be up to fire code so that you don't burn all your neighbors down. Um, (laughs) if your husband's like, like my, I live in a townhouse where I have two, I have a, a, a unit on either side of me there's a fire break in between the two mm-hmm. units and that's like the legal fire code requires this special piece of material and this distance between the two units even though the, the buildings are actually one unit there's a piece in between them and it also helps with sound dampening but it's mostly because if a fire breaks out in my unit it's much less likely to spread to the next unit just like if you have like a big building like a like a, a business building and they'll have these fire doors Yes, like exactly. Really and and often they're held open with magnets and then the magnets all trip when the fire alarms go off, they all shut. And then these giant metal doors that are sealed pretty tight and it's to prevent like fire and smoke from getting through them. And it's right. to slow the path of the flame, 100%. So everywhere has these types of codes. So in places where there are hurricanes, there's often codes around like you need to have um, the buildings, like the houses, the apartments, whatever it might be, all the infrastructure needs to be proofed up to a certain wind speed. Oh, so, you know, you think about like, the Wizard of Oz and the tornado hits and like all the infrastructure just gets like blown away, right? It's basically you're designing infrastructure to withstand that type of force for as long as possible and not get, you know, torn out from the foundations or have your roof torn off and stuff like that. Obviously it's not perfect, but the idea again being that like, 60% 60% is better than 0% kind of thing, right? Yeah, and it's like, yeah. if you can present prevent some of the worst effects or basically make your failure point so much, you know, you can't protect against the most extreme all the time, but if you can get your failure point much closer to it, then it means that you're going to protect yourselves a lot better and the people a lot better. Exactly. And just like with the levees, like if you can, once they get breached, they're much more likely to fail completely. It's the same with this, right? Like if you, if your building is stronger, then it's not going to, it's not going to fall apart as quickly or from the same from the lower forces, which means that if a higher force comes along, maybe it starts ripping off your shingles, but if your shingles are already off and it can get into your house, then that's going to cause a lot more damage. You at least like 
everything's like this positive feedback loop, right? Mm-hmm. And even like some some cities that are very low lying and susceptible to flooding of any type will have in their sewage systems, they'll have one, they'll have massively improved sewage systems. So you have much larger sewer channels underneath the city so that they can handle these big surges of water rather than a pipe that's just big enough to handle water all the time. It's like a huge pipe that's mostly ever like at 10% capacity and then in a big rainstorm it can like fill up and be full of water and other cities will even have like pumps in their sewage system so some places um some homes will have what you call a sump pump or a boat will have a sump pump oh yeah i heard that term yeah and it's basically just a small pump that you have in your home that will push water out of it um essentially or you know so it'll if especially it works if you are slightly below the water table or below other points of the storm system the sump pump basically just counteracts the natural force and pushes okay. things basically up that energy gradient to a higher plane or whatever and out of a house. So like much more high-tech versions of the, uh, sometimes you see like houses on stilts. Yeah. If they're in areas yeah. that like might flood or might flood more frequently. Mm-hmm. And in fact, there's even like historical examples of entire cities that have just been raised up oh. where they basically just went, okay, like we're just going to put a bunch of sand down or dirt everywhere and we're going to we're going to force all the homes we're going to increase the foundation of all the homes and then we're going to put more dirt underneath them even like um Seattle has this it's not quite for the same reason it more has to do with like how Seattle was built as a city and then how the infrastructure continued to grow but Seattle has like a whole undercity where the Whoa. first floor of a lot of the buildings in the downtown basically became underground that's so wild it is i we went on a tour of it when i was down in seattle it's very fascinating there's a lot of like ghost stories and stuff down of course there. It's, it's really cool but uh, it's the same sort of thing like, i mean obviously for a lot of cities that exist today that's not possible you can't just sort of go let's raise the whole city 10 feet yeah. <laughs> um but a big thing too is that like what's happened in a lot of areas like areas around like houston and stuff which was hit pretty hard by ida is uh, sorry it's not Ida it was the next one uh the name escapes me at the current moment but they were hit pretty bad this past year and part of it is because like Houston is actually built like on a wetland it's this low-lying marshland area and marshes are one of the best natural protections against flooding whether it be rivers you know storms any of that kind of stuff right because it's wet ground that can absorb a lot of water yeah it's its whole function is to be wet Exactly. That's why it's called a wetland. Um, But as human activity, and again, like we talked about, we tend to live on these floodplains, these areas that are more likely to absorb water. Coastlines as well. Exactly. But these cities start to expand, especially a city like Houston, which is very similar to Calgary in that it's got a lot of sprawl. It's just stretched out in every direction, a lot of suburbs and stuff. You're putting all this asphalt and concrete and infrastructure down. You're packing the earth down. Now it can't absorb as much water or it's not as easy for it, right? If If you have asphalt, the water's not penetrating into the soil, it's sliding along the asphalt, right? Yeah. And so it's creating the the inability for the land to soak up as much of this water. And then it, again, then it's ending up in your sewage systems. Then it's ending up flooding the city rather than in a natural environment where it would, you know, it would flood these lands, but the land is ready to accept this water and, and process it essentially. Absolutely. And I mean, wetlands are the best of this, but like any green space is going to be better than concrete. Yeah, right? exactly. Like, because... The ground is porous. There's, it's not sealed off with a cap of, <laughs> of asphalt. Mm-hmm. Um, so you have wetlands, but even parks and things like this. I heard uh, Shanghai is trying to do this a lot. It's trying to put in a bunch of parks uh, to make itself a sponge city, which I thought was really cool. Yeah. Uh, putting in these, just put in more natural area that is better able to absorb water. So you're better able to handle these big, big storms. Um, and it's not just wetlands either and, and parks. You have things like mangroves which are 
It's like trees that basically can, they grow essentially in salt water. Yep. Um, they have very cool, I forget what they're called, but they have very cool cells and that have the capacity of, they absorb this salt water, but salt is obviously very bad for plants and they can expel the salt. Very cool. Um, or reefs. Reefs can really reduce the impact of storms, especially big waves, because like we're talking about with the tornadoes and you put a wall in the way, you interrupt the medium of that, which it's flowing through and it can interrupt it. Or we have the levees for hurricanes. If you have a reef, it's a big structure under the water that interrupts the unimpeded path and causes a little bit of turbulence to ruin the momentum of these, of these big waves under the water. Um, and dunes actually can help as well because dune, you've got porous ground, right? You're sandy um, and they're usually higher and the sand is held in place by plants a lot of the time. And so that makes the, sta the sand a lot more uh, structured and able to hold itself together better. So these are all very important natural phenomenon that can help to reduce the impact and devastation of certain storms and different types of storms that through human activity, we have really messed with in a lot of ways or taken out completely or certain actions of ours are killing the systems like with the reefs or we build on top of important areas like wetlands and marshes um, and then a big storm comes along and it's the impact is worse because we've taken away earth's natural filtering systems and there's other reasons too that like there's there's a lot of evidence that is pointing towards the impact of climate change yeah. increasing the strength and the frequency of these types of storms. Absolutely. Like with the hurricanes, there's um there's evidence that they're moving slower, right? Mm -hmm. They're they're moving slower which aligns very very lines up pretty well with our heat dome discussion where we're getting these heat domes because air is not moving as quickly around the planet. What's that called again? The jet stream. So the some of the stream. jet streams are being disrupted. These natural areas right. of, you know, you've got low pressure, high pressure that's moving the air along or currents of hot and cold areas that's moving stuff. Yeah. yeah. So as those slow, then we get these like bad weather lasts, stays in one place longer. And there's, that's been shown with hurricanes as well. They're moving slower. So if they make landfall somewhere, they're, they may not blow through and move up a coast. They might stay on one country for longer and do more devastating impact there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's the obviously like with with increased temperatures and things like that, you have more warm water near the equator. Right. So there's more more of this energy differential to feed these storms. You've basically got a bigger engine building bigger storms. They're moving slower. They can build up more energy and then they're not losing their energy as quickly as they make landfall. So it's, it's always been common to have storms that make landfall on the Eastern coast of the States. Yeah. Um, especially as far South as Florida have become like tropical storms or lower energy storms when they reach areas like Nova Scotia and like the East coast of Canada. But it's, it's starting to become more common that those storms are basically still like full on tropical storms or cyclones by the time they reach those parts. Right. So it's the same sort of thing like Hurricane Sandy a number of years ago that hit like the New York coast was really powerful for how no far north it made landfall. Yeah. And that's with that. There's that zone. Right. We can't have our tropical storms at the equator or at the poles because it's too hot or too cold. You don't have the right movement of, of the water and of the air. But as uh, global temperatures increase and then the ocean's temperature increases, that zone is going from with the size it is now. It's starting to expand north and south. So these storms are having more capacity to form and uh, persist. Mm -hmm. And that's why you're starting to see these like crazy storm seasons where there's so much more um, 
so many more storms, so many more uh, deadly storms, damaging storms, all all of that type, really. Yeah, and with like a lot of the effects of uh, a changing climate, it's really impacting like poor and underserved communities a lot more. Like with um, the hurricane, uh, I think it was Hurricane Maria that hit Puerto Rico a couple mm-hmm. of years ago. Mm-hmm. Yes, um, yes, the, particularly devastating, yeah. Yeah, very devastating. Um, and it, the U.S. took a long time to get aid to Puerto Rico. And when it finally did, the aid was going into, like, the bigger cities and the more affluent areas. And the the poorer areas had a much harder time accessing that aid and, and just having any ability to receive that aid. And uh, I was reading that there's also an issue of sometimes poorer communities they won't have the right paper paperwork for different houses they'll they'll be they'll have passed land and paper down through generations potentially by more of like an oral agreement or just this understanding so then if they get damaged they can't prove that they own the land so then they can end up disconnected from their land there's a lot of issues with it but it's that the the privilege gap basically is going to continue to increase and expand but to end this on a less upsetting note, uh, I have one fact that I didn't know where to put, so I put it at the end because <laughs> I couldn't figure it out. So we talked about like different ways you can deal with uh, maybe an earthquake and like what we can do, but we can't really stop them. So there's been this idea with hurricanes that you might be able to stop it if you detonate a very powerful bomb in the eye. And now we know that the most powerful bombs we have are... Nukes! This is like the Armageddon school of thought. Like, I can solve every problem with a nuke. (laughs) Yeah, if I just have a bomb big enough. We'll train oil drillers to be astronauts (laughs) rather than the other way around. (laughs) You're never going to get over that. (laughs) No, nobody ever will. That's true. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so so there's this idea. If you put a nuke in the eye of the storm uh, and you explode it, it will help to dissipate the energy. It will disrupt the energy. However, uh, the most powerful nuke ever tested, which is a Soviet uh, bomb called Tsar Bomba, uh, this releases the same amount of energy that a big hurricane releases every couple of hours. So, in reality, we don't have a bomb big enough to do this job, so what we probably end up with is a radioactive hurricane, which is so much worse! It's much worse. I mean, I I don't want to go too far into like, yeah, like why it would actually irradiate stuff because it is like it's like it's it's sort of one of those interesting things about like a nuclear bomb. Uh, the radiation that comes off a nuclear bomb is not actually often because of the like the nuclear material itself, but it's because of how it affects the nuclear material in the ground oh. and stuff like that. But we won't go into that now. Maybe save that for another <laughs> podcast. But yeah. Oh God, I hope that's not in the news. Yeah. Oh gee, yeah. Well, oh, no. uh, um, there were there were some <laughs> rocket tests this week ah. uh, by some a particular country uh. on a particular peninsula. Never mind. <laughs> this was supposed to be my fun fact. Yeah, sorry to you. Well, you you decided to put a fun fact involving nukes at the very end of the podcast. You you. You, like, oh, I'll just slip this in at the end. It's like, no, as soon as you start talking about nukes, it's like a whole can of worms you got to right. open up. We should, we'll just close that can right now. Yeah, exactly. We'll just put it back closed. <laughs> yeah. All right, Oppenheimer, trying to put the trying to put the genie back in the bottle. Nice can- try. Cans are, or worms are back in the can. Yeah. But yeah, so yeah, that takes us through today's topic. Uh, again, we will link a few things in the description of how you can donate to some of the relief efforts that are still going on, especially for areas like Haiti. Again, very a very poor country, Haiti. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it's, again, it's, like I said at the top, you know, 
Uh, we are so, the news cycle is so fast. We are so quick yeah. to move on from these things. Obviously, there's been another devastating storm in Ida, so attention get, moves very quickly. Yeah. But it's just important to bring these things up and, and continue to discuss them and to recognize that, like, again, these infrastructure things are not corrected overnight. These, um, the relief efforts don't, aren't resolved overnight. They continue for years and years. And governments can only do so much. And yeah. there's often... A, a big challenge getting money from the government to the people. Yeah. So a number of the things that we're going to link to are ways you can donate to people on the ground. Yeah. Exactly. Well, cool. Uh, any... I don't know what we'll talk about next. Hopefully not news. Hopefully not news. There you go. <laughs> yeah. uh, if you do have a topic, please let us know. Um, mm -hmm. If you'd like to check out Third Sock from the Sun, my YouTube channel, where I do fun and interesting uh sock puppet science videos. I finished my plastic series. Go check it out. Let me know what you think. I also released my first worksheet. So if you teach anybody, uh, there's worksheets available. I only have it for the first video right now, but I will be adding them throughout the next couple of weeks. Um, buy them. Let me know what you think. If you have students you're teaching uh, and they like them, please, please tell me. Uh, I would love any feedback I can get on these. Awesome. Yeah. Well, uh, that, uh, oh yes. And, uh, please reach out or follow us on Twitter at temporary expert. Just one expert. I swear to God, I will put together an Instagram at some <laughs> point in the future. Maybe. You can follow third sock from the sun on Instagram and That's I will true. post, I do post the new podcast as well. Yeah, so. Exactly. So, um, but yeah, uh, if you're liking the show, consider leaving us a review on whichever streaming service that you are using. Mm -hmm. Uh, just, it helps us, you know, increase our reach uh, and we want to hack those algorithms because we're sciencey. Yeah, leave, so, leave us some stars too if if your platform has that. If that's how you feel about it. But yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, and for all of us here, temporary experts, she's Sarah Bannister, and he's Davis Leong, and we have been your temporary, temporary experts. experts. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Don't you believe in the rubber, but you don't 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 believe in the rubber, but you don't